You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. For the fourth episode in our series about memory, we'll hear from Henry Rodiger, professor of psychology at Washington University in St. Louis and head of the department's memory lab. Rodiger is an internationally recognized scholar of human memory. Earlier this year, the Association for Psychological Science presented him with its highest honor, the William James Fellow Award. For today's podcast, he'll be talking about false memories. False memories are the human tendency to remember events differently from the way they really happened, or in the most dramatic case, to remember something that didn't happen to you at all. And people have trouble believing that this could happen to them. After all, we, our memories are us. It's a record of our past. It's what we believe. It's who we are. It's our identity. And to find that part of our identity is misleading or is wrong uh, is really odd. And yet, both personal experience and anecdotes, as well as Uh, laboratory experiments show this can happen. Let me start with a a famous anecdote from a great psychologist, Jean Piaget. He's a developmental psychologist, uh, but the anecdote he told was about childhood memory. And one of his dearest memories that he had throughout his life was when he was a young boy in Paris. He was the subject of an attempted kidnapping. Uh, His nanny was walking him near a subway station in Paris. The kidnapper attempted to take him. The nanny fought him off. The nanny got scratches and bruises, uh, but she succeeded and she got him home. Of course, what makes this a false memory is that the story never happened. Years later, the nanny confessed that she had made the whole thing up. She even returned a watch that the family had given her as a reward for her bravery. But even after Piaget knew the truth, he still had this vivid memory of the attempted kidnapping. He could still remember the kidnapper. He could still remember the scratches the nanny got. He could still remember the whole scene. Well, what he really did, of course, was he created this scene every time the story was told by his mother or his father or by himself. And so his memory got richer and richer with the retellings, but it was retellings of an event that never happened. And this is the kind of thing I study in the laboratory, not this dramatic version, of course, but uh, the fact that we can, in laboratory situations, show people movies or slideshows or give them word lists and have them remember things that didn't happen to them. We also can ask them to repeatedly retrieve those things, and the more times you retrieve something, the more times you think, yes, this really happened to me, I'm recalling it, the more confident you become in your memory, whether it's true or false. The idea of researchers being able to plant or provoke false memories is fascinating and perhaps a little disturbing. Let's find out how these experiments work and what psychologists are trying to learn from the process. Uh, One is we show people simulated crimes, and I mean, they're watching videotapes, and then later they will either be asked leading questions. Let me take one example. Suppose you're uh, witnessing a traffic accident, and at the traffic accident, it will become critical whether a car stopped before it proceeded into an intersection where it uh, was hit by the other car. And it might be critical whether there was a stop sign or a yield sign there. So let's imagine that it was actually a yield sign in, in the scene. Later on, the person might be asked, did the car stop at the stop sign? And they're trying to remember what 
the car did, of course, but now you've inserted a tiny bit of misinformation because it was actually a yield sign. So then you wait a while and then you ask them, by the way, what kind of traffic sign was it at the intersection? And frequently the correct information, the yield sign, will have been replaced in their reports by the stop sign, which was suggested to them, but which was wrong. Now think about a case in which you witness a real car accident. After the accident, you tell the story again and again, to the police, to insurance representatives, to your friends and family. It turns out that the type of questions these people ask, as well as the number of times you repeat the story, can influence what you remember or what you think you remember. And so it could be by the time it's time for you to testify in court, let's say a year later, you've repeatedly retrieved this story so many times and you've thought about it from so many different angles that the way you remember it when you testify in court might be very different from the way you would have reported it had you been tested, say, two minutes after the accident. And so what we do in experiments in the lab is we ask leading questions, or we have them read a narrative that's supposedly from another witness, and the narrative suggests a few wrong details, and we ask, will people pick these details up and incorporate them into their own memories? And the answer is yes, not always, but but frequently they will do that. And that's why, say, suggestive questioning by police or by others can shape memories in a certain way. This type of suggestive questioning can be extremely subtle. For example, in another experiment, researchers asked one set of participants, how fast were the cars traveling when they hit each other? And another set of participants were asked, how fast were the cars traveling when they smashed into each other? People who heard the word smashed estimated that the cars were traveling significantly faster than those who heard the word hit. Just changing that one word in the question, hit to smashed, made a major difference in how people remembered the scene. But the effects of suggestive questioning make up just one portion of Rodiger's research into false memory. Let's turn to a different type of experiment. One of the paradigms that I developed with Kathleen McDermott to study false memories simply involves reading people a list of words. So suppose I read you bed, rest, awake, tired, dream, slumber, and so forth and so on. I read you 15 words, tell you beforehand, be absolutely sure to recall this accurately. Don't tell me, don't guess, don't tell me anything that's wrong. And then I test you just as soon as the list is over. In other words, it's the simplest memory experiment you can imagine. Immediate testing, just 15 words, strong instructions not to make errors. And yet, in these kinds of lists, over 50% of the time, people remember a word that was not on the list. In this case, the word is sleep. Uh, that those 15 words that I would have read, I only read you about six or seven, those are associated to sleep, but sleep is never mentioned. Sleep's not in the list, but each one of those words activates an association to sleep. And so afterwards, people are very likely to remember sleep, even on an immediate test. We were just stunned by those results. And if you ask people to tell you, are you absolutely sure that each of these words was on the list. Go back through. We think one of them wasn't on the list. They can't pick it out. They, they don't know which one was wrong. This method, memorizing lists of words, is helpful for understanding yet another aspect of false memory. And that's the role of a person's previous knowledge or expertise. It makes sense that a person retains information better if that information relates to a subject that the person already knows a lot about. But as Rodiger explains, when it comes to memory, expertise can be something of a double-edged sword. One of the experiments we did depended on expertise. We took people who were either 
uh, pro football fans and they watched pro football and they knew a lot about pro football or we took people who expressed no particular interest in pro football they didn't watch games they didn't know much about it and then we gave them two lists of words to remember. One was just control lists, like the sleep list I just talked about, and both groups were equally likely to falsely recognize things or recall things in that list. But then we gave them a list of pro football team names, so Rams, Cardinals, Patriots, so forth and so on. But we left out a bunch of names, and our interest was, would the pro football relative experts, the people who were the real fans, would they remember the list better than the people who weren't fans? Uh, We suspected they would, but also we wondered, would they show more false memories? Would they recall uh, the names of teams uh, like Bears, which I didn't say, and they showed much greater false memories for those too. So when you know so much, yes, you'll remember the correct information better, but you're also more likely to remember false information. It's what we call reality monitoring error. When, when something comes to mind, you have to think, did this really happen or did I just think it? And often we're not good at doing that. Sometimes we're quite good, but, but at least in this situation that we put people in, uh, they make many errors. According to Rodiger, there are generally thought to be three stages of memory. Encoding, when you take in the memory. Storage or retention, when you hold on to the memory and then retrieval, when you're called upon to remember. And as all of this research shows, false memories can pop up at any stage of this memory process. But why is this the case? Do human beings just have terrible memories that can't be trusted? We can ask, why, why would we have these kinds of false memories? Wouldn't it be maladaptive? How could we have evolved to have memories that are, are so error-prone? But actually, most of the operations that I just described in the pro football study, they actually serve us well, that human beings, unlike computers, most computers at least, uh, are inference machines. What makes us intelligent is that we always go beyond the literal information given. We're always, as you're listening to me talk, you're probably thinking of your own experiences, you're relating to this to what you already know, you're thinking about a false memory you think somebody else had, but maybe not you, or maybe one you had. So you're always going beyond the little wording, and it's this tendency to make inferences that makes humans really smart, but it can also sometimes, in the wrong circumstances, lead us into trouble. There's another paradigm where people are given sentences Uh, like the karate champion hit the cinder block or the baby stayed awake all night. If you give people sentences like this and then you later ask them to remember them, you say, what did the baby do or what did the karate champion do? They often remember the karate champion broke the cinder block. Uh, Well, it actually said the karate champion hit the cinder block. He could have broken his hand and the cinder block was fine. The baby stayed awake all night. Well, people remember that as the baby cried all night, which... You know, nine times out of ten, it's probably true. The baby was probably not just lying there all night, but was crying. Yet the sentence literally didn't say that. So often we don't remember the literal words, but we remember the implied meaning. Often those inferences can be perfectly correct, but in the cases where they aren't correct, then you could have a false memory. And people have tried to look using brain imaging for things that we know really happened and things that didn't. And usually the reason you can't tell is your brain can't tell either. The activations for false memories and true memories often look just alike. We retrieve them the same way. And so you're simply reporting faithfully what you think you remember, even though sometimes it's an error. 
Even though this ability to draw inferences is a helpful skill to have, in some cases the implications of the false memories that result are extremely serious. The Innocence Project, which works to overturn criminal convictions using DNA evidence, cites eyewitness misidentification as the single greatest cause of false convictions nationwide. This is part of the reason why research like Rodiger's that's trying to find out how and why false memories happen is so critical. False memories are a very active area of research. For example, one thing I'm doing now is uh, working with, with some graduate students here is trying, uh, we know lineups are a problem, police lineups that people use to identify. And so we're asking questions about what is the best way to construct a lineup to help maximize correct accurate memories and minimize false identifications. And so a lot of labs are working on this uh, around the country, trying to give good advice to law enforcement as to what's the best way to construct a lineup. The typical way now, you have a suspect, and let's say they've got a general description of the perpetrator. It was a six-foot white man weighing 200 pounds with brown hair and glasses. Well, when you have a lineup, typically you want them to match the verbal description. If you put in one white guy who fits the description and then two Asians and three African Americans, well, guess what? You might have a false identification just because the only guy who actually fits the description is in the lineup. So the, the advice is, well, everybody should kind of fit the description. They should all be about six feet tall, you know, maybe 5'10 to 6'2. They should all fit the same general verbal description. And then you need to see is the uh, real person in that lineup. But think about what that means. We all know from taking multiple choice tests, the, you know, when, when there's a correct answer, but all the incorrect answers are pretty similar, it's a really hard test. So even though when we think the best thing to do is to make the alternative similar, when you've done that, you then also might be raising the chance of people making an error. Yes, the real person's in there, but so are a couple of other people who look pretty much like the real person. So does that decrease or increase the probability of error? So what psychologists are doing trying to ask questions like, uh, how many people should be in the lineup? Should you look at them all simultaneously, side by side, or should you look at them one at a time, successively? And so it's a very tricky issue. So that's one area of research going forward that I think will be very important, but where it's still very unsettled as to what the best advice really should be at this point. Many thanks to Henry, better known as Roddy Rodiger, for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find links to his faculty and laboratory page, as well as more topics to explore at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu.